Today's reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, and can be found on page 1163 of the Church Bibles. So that's 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, on 1163. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is the word of the Lord. Now we all know that there's more to life than earning as much as we can. We all know that. Celebrities know that. Jim Carrey, the actor of Ace Ventura and Bruce Almighty, said, I hope everybody could get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of, so they will know that it is not the answer. Kings know that. George III once met a stable boy and said to him, What do you get, Jack, for your work? I get nothing, sir, the boy replied, only my food and drink and a place to sleep in. The king said, Well, that's all they give me. Now, of course, George III may have, of course, had a greater range to his diet and a greater range of uh, palaces to live in, but he could only eat one meal at a time and he could only stay in one place at a time. Prime ministers know that. David Cameron once said, it's time we admitted that there was more to life than money and it's time we focused not just on GDP, but on GWB, general well-being. There are also, of course, lots of things that money can't buy. Money can't buy health. If four of you were to, this morning, be diagnosed this week with pancreatic cancer, three of you would not be here next Christmas. It was the Beatles who famously sang, Money can't buy me love. As wealthy celebs know, like any jilted Romeo, that you can never force someone to love you. Love to be loved has to be freely given. Albert Einstein correctly observed, not everything that can be counted counts. And not everything that counts can be counted. I think that quote's worth a repetition. Not everything that can be counted counts. And not everything that counts can be counted. The advice Jesus gave in his Sermon on the Mount on money was not to put our trust in it, since we can so easily lose it, and we certainly can't take it with us. But to be poor is not the solution. To be really poor, not having much of the basic necessities of life, is miserable. So it's good and necessary to aspire, to work hard, to create wealth, to make sacrifices, to invest for the future, and if we prosper, to be generous. But whether it's just a case of our needs being met, or whether we are much better off than that, we are urged to be content now and invest for our future life, the next life, the life that is yet to come. Now, in the New Testament, there are scattered around little nuggets, one-liners that sum up the core of the Christian message. And one of those is this one. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
But though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. It's obvious that the writer, Paul of Tarsus, does not mean this in any literal sense. Rather, he's using an economic analogy for something else. And four questions will help us discover what it is that he is getting at. They're these. First, what then does he mean for the Lord Jesus Christ to be rich? Second, what does it mean for the Lord Jesus Christ to become poor? Thirdly, what does it mean for us to be poor? And lastly, how do we, though poor, become rich? So what does it mean for the Lord Jesus Christ to be rich? Well, we know how he's designated in the Bible. King of kings, Lord of lords, almighty God. He clearly has power and authority. He is called the everlasting father, the creator and sustainer of, this u- of our existence and this universe. And he is the prince of peace. He enjoyed the harmony of heaven. He enjoyed sharing In the love of God, the Father, God the Son, well, himself, and God the Holy Spirit. Together, they were not, uh, they were a community of love. God is not a solitary being. Love to be love has to be given and received. You can't experience love when you're alone on a desert island that is uninhabited. There's no one to love and to receive love from. And for all eternity, God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit enjoyed a perfect harmony as their three persons were joined together through perfect love. To be rich then was to have nothing present which detracted from that perfect harmony. Secondly then, What does it mean for the Lord Jesus Christ to become poor? It's true that as a result of the census of Augustus, that Jesus was born far away from his home in Nazareth. And in the early months after his birth in Bethlehem, he was a refugee in Egypt, on the run from a paranoid tyrant out to kill him. But he was a carpenter's son, a skilled trade. You have to be pretty bright to be a carpenter. I remember the project manager for this auditorium 20 or 5 years ago saying that uh, he reckoned that uh, his chippies, carpenters, you know, will soon need to go to university. It's that level of mathematical ability that is required to be a cabinet maker a joiner, a skilled carpenter. So Jesus wasn't uh, poor as in destitute. What he gave up in coming to earth was the harmony and holiness of heaven. He experienced a world where there was disharmony, where some pretty nasty, unholy stuff goes on in contrast to heaven. But although he encountered it, He never succumbed to it. He was on the receiving end of a great deal of inhumanity and injustice, but he never responded in like manner. 
In fact, he never sinned. No one, not even his fiercest critics, could actually find fault with him, although they tried really hard to do so. And all the time, he avoided committing sin, he retained communion, fellowship, harmony with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, what does it mean for us to be poor? Surely the absence of peace, harmony and perfect relationships that were meant to last forever. By this time next week, you will have had six days of Christmas and I suspect you might have had that confirmed. Now, when we fall out with each other and when we have particularly wronged someone, Catching up with them can be awkward. We may not even want to meet up. We might be embarrassed by our email outbursts and our Facebook faux pas. And that's how we once or may still feel about God, who we've not granted pride and place in our lives. The Father who we've left behind, the Son who we've ignored, and the Holy Spirit's convincing and convicting nudges we have fended off. Our poverty is our default alienation from God, where we start life off. The awareness of him, but the sense that we don't know him. The trepidation that if we were to meet him, it would be as judge with an adverse verdict pending rather than as a father with outstretched arms to welcome back us as wayward prodigals. And we're aware that between us and him there is a barrier, a blockage in the relationship which the Bible calls sin. How is it to be removed? Well, let's turn to our fourth diagnostic question. So how do we, though poor, become rich? To use an illustration from the accounting world, we are in debt and we are not in a position to be able to pay off that debt. We could work for our entire life. We could acquire the most rare qualifications so that we could command an absolute premium on, uh, on our remuneration, and we'd still never be able to pay it off. We have to admit that we have a need, and we can't meet it. And to ask for help can often be very hard. But what if someone could pay off the debt on our behalf? In Matthew's account of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus literally says, Matthew 6, 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus is saying, in other words, that our sins are like our debts and we are to pray to God, our Heavenly Father, for him to pay them off for us. The phenomenally successful uh, multi-billionaire I mean, he's, he's worth $8 billion today, but he's given away $32 billion, so goodness knows how much money he's generated in his life. 
George Soros, and while he's made a mess of his own life at times, he was dead right in his investment strategy. He writes, I'm only rich because I know when I'm wrong. I basically have survived, if you call living on about 100 billion quid surviving, I've basically have survived by recognising my mistakes. The heart of salvation that Jesus brought is this. To quote from the late John Stott, human beings are alienated from God by sin and God is alienated from human beings by wrath. It is by the substitutionary death of Christ that sin is overcome and wrath is averted so that God can look on human beings without displeasure and human beings can look on God without fear. Now in biblical language, sin is said to be expiated or taken away, it exits from our lives. And God is said to be propitiated, his wrath is removed because his justice has been satisfied. Now illustrations help us understand and redemption is an illustration from the marketplace, from the commercial world involving financial transactions. To redeem means to buy back. For we're in a mess in captivity to sin, trapped as we can't not sin. You can make the resolution to never do anything wrong on January the 1st. Well, you won't even get as far as the first week. It's impossible. We can't not sin, which is what has made the divine rescue necessary. And propitiation focuses on God's wrath, which was placated on the cross, satisfied on the cross. And redemption focuses on the plight of sinners, from which they are ransomed by the cross. And ransom is the price of our release, a word used in the slave markets of the ancient world. A slave could be redeemed from captivity, his plight, by the payment of a ransom, the price. Now in the New Testament, our plight is the moral bondage which we cannot extricate ourselves from and which makes it necessary for us to be redeemed. Described by the Apostle Peter as the empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers. The price is the atoning death of God's Son. He gave himself Paul says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all people, or gave his life, his psyche in Greek, from which of course we get psychology. As Jesus says, Mark 10.45, the Son of Man, Jesus said, speaking of himself, came to give his life a ransom for many. Our lives are forfeit. His life was sacrificed instead. 
what happened to him is what should have happened to many. This word ransom was used when the Roman general Marcus Licinius Crassus visited the temple in Jerusalem in 54 BC, intent on plundering the sanctuary. Crassus had made his name when he put down the slave revolt led by Spartacus. He moved on to become governor of Syria, and he liked money and he enjoyed the spoils of war. Judea was part of his province. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, a priest named Eleazar, who was guardian of those sacred treasures, offered Crassus a gold bar worth 10,000 shekels, which I'm told is about 5 million US dollars in today's money, as a ransom instead of those treasures. The gold bar was offered as a substitute for the temple's priceless artefacts. So the redemption image has three emphases. The plight from which we are ransomed, the price with which we are ransomed, and thirdly it draws attention to the person of the Redeemer who has, we might say, proprietary rights over his purchase. Now the Apostle Peter is outraged in one of his letters, the second one, where at the beginning of chapter 2 he speaks of false teachers who by their shameful behaviour are, quote, denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. He bought them so they are his. He writes, you are not your own, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. One verse earlier, Paul had written, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? So our body has been created by God, One day, our body will be resurrected by God. He has bought it by his own actions, and we are indwelt by his spirit. Therefore, three times over, by creation, redemption, and indwelling, our lives belong to him. So how then, since it doesn't belong to us, can we misuse it? Instead, we are to honour God with it by obedience and self-control. Bought by Christ, we have no business to become the slaves of anybody or anything else. Once we were slaves of sin, now We are the slaves of Christ and in his service is true and perfect freedom which is to live as he designed us to live. When Jesus died, God's justice was satisfied. There and then he paid the price for sin and that can be credited to our accounts. 
our debt of sin can be paid off. We need no longer to be in the red. Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And many of you do know, though some of you may not. God's grace is an act of undeserved giving. As we pray in the prayer of general thanksgiving, not only for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but above all, for God's inestimable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. Some of you may only know the first three, creation, preservation, and the blessings of this life things common to this life, experienced by all people, whoever they are, wherever they are, whenever they live. It's known as common grace. What you may not know is his inestimable love in the redemption of the world, what is called his saving grace, where he has bought us back by paying the debt of our sins. As the Easter hymn recalls, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. It is ironic that he uses an economic illustration for what is a free gift. But as with all presents, we need to open them and put them into use for them to benefit us for us to know we have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And do you know what? That God is unfair by our standards. Because the more we've sinned, the more he forgives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, on this day, at this time of the year, we do give you thanks for our creation, for our preservation, and for all the blessings of this life. But we most of all pray that we might know your inestimable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we receive grace and may we look forward in hope to glory. Amen.